Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Naomi, the writer. She is Assistant Professor of Psychology at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. In her current research, she is inspired by critical psychology and discursive psychology in her attempt to study the ontology or process mechanisms of self and identity as situated in time and context. And today we're focusing mostly on her book with Dr. Paul Van Geert toward the process approach in psychology, stepping into Heraclitus's river. So, Dr. The Writer, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, let's start perhaps with some theoretical background here before we get into some bigger questions. So, in the book, you talk about two different kinds of ontologies, a substance yeah. ontology and the process ontology. So, could you start by explaining a little bit what the substance ontology is, also because apparently it is still the dominant approach in psychology and I think social science in general, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, substance ontology, um, well, the word substance um, in, in this context comes from the original, uh, the original meaning of the word from, from Latin, which means substare, so to under, understand, stand underneath something else. Um, so if we think about this, substance ontology really is the idea that um, phenomena, so in my case, psychological phenomena, are kind of static entities that underlie, that stand under um, everything that we see. So they underlie our behavior, they underlie the variability in that behavior, um, that they're kind of there in the background or in our heads or wherever we want to kind of reduce them to, um, just existing and kind of generating our behavior um, and that any changes that we see with regards to, to development or the social context, um, those entities, those underlying entities remain as kind of static things. So this is, this is kind of the core of um, substance ontology uh, commitments in, in psychology. Um, and it has a lot of implications for how we think of um, psychological phenomena. So if we have, if we assume that things like um, our personalities, our uh, mental disorders, our, our, our um, abilities, talents, self-esteem, all are these underlying things that we have. Um, this means that we can also split these entities from other entities within us. So mm -hmm. there's this idea that then self-esteem and personality are two separate things that occur you know, in their own right, and they might influence each other, but they exist separately ontologically separately, um, that we can also split these entities from our social context. So mm -hmm. when I'm here in an interview with you, or if I'm at home with uh, my children, uh, my self-esteem is still just my self-esteem, irrespective of where I am. Mm -hmm. um, so that there's a lot of kind of assumptions of splitting uh, that coincide with the substance ontology. Um, there's also assumptions that uh, have to do with uh, reductionism, so reducing our observable behavior to these, these yeah, underlying things. Mm -hmm. um, often in psychology, it has to do with reduction to something neurological, 
or hormonal, that's a very kind of hip and popular way of, of uh, enacting this substance ontology. Um, yeah, and it also just comes with general assumptions of stability. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, a little bit of change across time is possible, but that's only if something external comes and, and pushes that underlying identity or entity uh, in a specific direction. But without that external push, the assumption would be that it would remain stable. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's kind of the gist. Yeah, and also f further down, uh, further on in our conversation, by talking about things like self-esteem, for example, I think that we'll get more time to explore mm -hmm. a little bit more the implications of a substance ontology for understanding psychological processes and all of that. You mentioned processes here, so what are uh, processes exactly, and what would be then a process ontology? Yeah, so. A process is anything um, that changes, <laughs> um, changes across time, um, and so th this is this is the key. This is the core of a, a process ontology. That instead of assuming that the the psychological phenomena that we have are entities, things that underlie our behavior, a process ontology is that all of psychological phenomena are processes. So they're always in a constant state of change, of becoming rather than being. Um, and that we might have this, um, it might seem, we might have this, this idea that uh, we are stable because we're always living in a certain moment where we experience stability. Um, but that in, in fact, uh, we are all processes all the way down and all the way up. So this is a way of thinking about process ontology. So all the way down means that you, the further down you go, whether it's like into our, our brains and our uh, neurons or our home, hormones, um, there's not any you can get to a thing, an entity. Um, all the way down, we still see activity and change. We see processes. Um, and then also process all the way up. So even across time, it's not as if we're reaching a stable level uh, a level of stability with any type of psychological phenomenon. Um, instead, what we might see is organization, um, differentiation, stabilization of patterns. So these patterns might be more or less dynamic or stable depending on the time scale that we take, but they're still always processes of change and activity. Uh, so this is really a fundamentally different way of uh, looking at ourselves and other people at our participants and a different way of trying to make sense of um, our social and our psychological world. Uh, and so how does that relate to complex dynamic uh, systems or complex dynamical systems theory? Uh, because yeah. in the book you also talk about how you can use that as a sort of theoretical framework to substantiate the process ontology, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so complex dynamic systems has a, a um, mathematical origin, um, also very, uh, very much taken up in, in biology, um, and it's quite new in, in psychology. Um, so it belongs within the, the various fields that take up um, process ontology or the process relational um, larger framework, um, and it's 
specifically focuses on um, understanding systems and how they change across time. Um, so first of all, complex dynamic systems is about trying to identify what are the components that make up a system. Um, and a system can be uh, self-esteem, it could be a whole individual, it could be a dyadic relationship, a family, a society, the whole world, so you can scale this up to whatever level you want to, which is also why it's a very uh, interdisciplinary um, theory or approach. You can apply it to, to anything, I think. Um, so once we identify the system that we're interested in and the components that make up that system, then the goal in, uh, in this approach is to uh, track, map, describe the way that those interactions between components create the system. So describing their feedback loops so that we have positive feedback loops, negative feedback loops that reinforce or inhibit change across time, for example. Um, and then we bring in the, the time components. So we describe the iterative changes. So how does the system move from one step to the next step and how across time does this result in emergence of uh, a new level for that system or a qualitative change for that system. Um, and when this, we can also place, place this in the context of the environment of the system. So it might be our school, it might be our society, um, but for complex systemic systems, it's crucial to understand a system as situated um, and to try to describe that situational uh, interaction. Mm -hmm. um, and when we do that, we can also take um, we can understand how the, the environment might influence us, uh, influence our behavior, for example, mm -hmm. based on the state of our, uh, or our intrinsic dynamics. So are we a stable system? Are we an unstable system? Um, depending on that, we will be more or less open to perturbations or kind of input from our environment. And we can right. make predictions, probable predictions about how we might uh, respond or develop in the future, whether we'll be resistant and stable, whether we'll change um, in a highly variable way or not. So that's what dynamic systems tries to do, kind of take all of this into account and describe the behavior, the developmental behavior of any system. Mm -hmm. Yes, and also I've already done the show a few interviews now with other people about dynamical systems theory. So just to refer to, for example, my interviews with Dr. Randall Beer and Paul Van Geert, where we get more into detail on what it really is and how it's done and the sort of methodological implications that it has. But uh, moving on to another question now, and before we get into self-esteem, another uh, thing that I would like to ask you about is, interestingly, in the book, you also get uh, a little bit into how science is done and sort of the philosophical foundations of the scientific praxis and all of that. So why do you think it's important to also explore that question when trying to understand perhaps some of the presuppositions and assumptions that are dominant in the scientific praxis that are mostly related, of course, to a substance ontology and then to try to make a move to a process ontology? Why are these questions important, basically? Um, so why is it important to understand 
how science is done. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. So uh, I think it's incredibly important to understand why we do what we do. Um, so psychologists, any anybody is who goes to university is kind of raised up as a, a scientist to to think that one method is is better than the other. Uh, that this is this one way is how we should do research, and this other way is is not good research. We have these implicit assumptions about which discipline is better than other disciplines or more scientific. Um, and I think we need to step back and um, really assess why do we think this and and how does it reflect our assumptions about the nature of what we're actually trying to study. So, Indeed, I think how science is done is typically uh, based on substance ontology assumptions or, or commitments with this basic assumption that um, uh, people are stable entities, that our psychological phenomena are stable entities, um, that it makes sense to, to split us up into different types of groups of people, to, to isolate these things, um, to identify basically the machinery of our of our cycle of our psychology um, and um, in a way and we talk about this in our in our book as well we can see this as a, a dominant pattern a praxis of that entails our common methodologies our common uh, discourses our uh, our tendencies our interactions with each other um, we, we've developed this dominant pattern, or in complex dynamic systems, we call it an attractor state, um, that kind of reinforces the use of substance ontology methods and assumptions. Um, and it's going to continue that way unless we try to uh, perturb it. Uh, so perturbing it means to, to kind of throw it off, off course. Um, and there are a lot of other kind of process ontology-based approaches out there. Uh, qualitative methodology, for example, fields that adopt this methods, these methods often don't assume substance ontology, but rather process ontology. So they're existing, they're kind of coexisting, these two different uh, paradigms, but the substance ontology approaches are definitely uh, dominant. Um, so I think we need to understand how all of this is, is kind of working and unpacking as we engage in science so that we, we're aware that we're actually reinforcing one specific type of science, one specific paradigm, um, and that there's a whole other one that's possible. Uh, mm -hmm. So that we don't just get caught up in something because we think it's the norm when actually it's just one norm. And our science needs to best map onto uh, the most realistic ontology, I think. And for psychology, I believe that it's a process ontology, not a substance ontology. So, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I understand it correctly, then we could also, when trying to understand how science works and how science as an institution works, we can also actually apply a process ontology here, right? I mean, in trying to perhaps understand science as done by a community of people that live in a particular cultural background or, with, or that come from a sort of, let's say, cultural framework that is imposed in that particular community and all of that, right? Absolutely. Our science and, and the, the, the praxis, the things that we do, uh, also need to be uh, contextualized and situated in our culture and our moment in, in history. 
Um, and I think if we kind of think this is science, it is what it is, it's not going to change or it shouldn't change because this is, this is uh, yeah, what, what good science is, then we don't allow our field to kind of evolve and, and develop and, and grow. So I think a more adaptive way of doing science is, is one that treats our system of research as um, a complex dynamic system and acknowledge that process ontology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so to illustrate all of this, let's get into self-esteem then, which is something that you have been studying yourself. So tell us perhaps first how self-esteem is usually approached in psychology through a substance ontology approach, and then we can get into how it changes or how it is differently approached through a process ontology. But start perhaps with the substance ontology approach here, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, in the field of psychology, um, the concept often is broken down into uh, trait self-esteem mm -hmm. um, and state self-esteem. Okay. And from a substance ontology perspective, and the dominant way that uh, self-esteem researchers look at, at these two components of self-esteem, they see our trait, so somebody has high self-esteem or low self-esteem or stable self-esteem or unstable self-esteem as their underlying entity, the thing that um, generates their behavior, that generates a score in a questionnaire. Um, right? We say, because I have low self-esteem, I broke up with this person and I no longer have a relationship or because I have high self-esteem I was able to uh, do really well in my exam so we kind of um, yeah treat this this trait as a deterministic essence that determines how we behave uh, we also assume not we but uh, psychologists in general tend to assume that there is that each individual has a true score that we actually have a true baseline level of uh, trait self-esteem and that around this uh, stable trait um, people will show variability okay and this is how they think of state self-esteem so state state self-esteem is commonly thought of as the variability around our true score our baseline level of self-esteem um, and this variability is again usually uh, attributed to either measurement error um, or noise from the context. Mm -hmm. So, there, so uh, there's a, a large assumption that our state self-esteem is basically the cause of feeling rejected or accepted in our social surrounding. Um, so, so again, if we imagine this is our, our baseline of self-esteem and that the context is kind of pushing or pulling the feeling of self-esteem above or below our baseline, but that's not real. The real self-esteem underlying all of that is supposed to be this true level. Um, and what that means for researchers is that it's perfectly reasonable to take the average, for example, of all of these variations in state self-esteem to get to that true score. Mm -hmm. So that's one kind of practical methodological um, rather than actually taking that Self, that state self-esteem variability as its own intrinsic process mm -hmm. with its own intrinsic dynamics and looking at how those two levels, the, the state level and the trait level, uh, feed into each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the basis, I think, of the standard and, approach. 
and, and so, I mean, does that mean then that uh, if we approach self-esteem from a substance ontology perspective, people don't tend to believe that self-esteem actually varies much? I mean, because since there's that stable underlying trait there, it's as if whatever happens, a particular person always has that sort of uh, trait self-esteem that, I mean, actually never actually it changes, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the, that's where this uh, background idea of stability comes in. Uh -huh. uh, where we look at individual differences rather than, uh, yeah, p potentials for development within an individual. And I don't think anybody would, would then think that self-esteem can never change, but there mm -hmm. would be this idea of slow incremental change right. that's also universal. So a lot of self-esteem research focuses on um, in adolescence, there's a dip in self-esteem, and in uh, old age, there's a dip in self-esteem. But other than that, there's kind of a large um, mm -hmm. developmental increase. But again, there's this idea then that we universally share this, this stuff of self-esteem yeah. that follows this trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, so it places us in kind of a passive role, I think. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what changes does a process ontology bring to the table when theorizing about self-esteem and also how you approach it methodologically? Yeah. So a, a process ontology approach to self-esteem would in a way come closer to a kind of anti-realist approach mm -hmm. um, with this idea that we don't have we don't have self-esteem. It's not a thing that we have that's yeah. just sitting there causing us to feel a certain thing or do a certain thing. Um, but self-esteem is just a way of describing any kind of uh, uh, behavior or emotions related to ourselves that have a valence. So a, a sense of positivity or negativity. Yeah. Uh, so feeling confident or feeling autonomous, uh, feeling connected uh, to other people and as somebody who has worth. So it's just kind of a descriptive umbrella term for all of these different components mm -hmm. that make up how, whether we feel good or bad about ourselves um, in terms of emotions, behaviors, cognitions. Um, and then we can think of all of those components as components of a system. Mm -hmm. and we then have a self-esteem system right. um, where trait self-esteem isn't an underlying thing that we have, but it's a pattern that we've developed across time. It's an attractor state, uh, which still then allows us to think about some kind of stability and, and, and the fact that some people do think, well, I, or they feel, they recognize that they do have a tendency to feel good about themselves or bad about themselves. So I'm not denying mm -hmm. these tendencies, but it's a different way of explaining them and saying rather than this person has a thing, a, a trait, um, they've developed a pattern, kind of like they've developed a, a habit of mm -hmm. thinking about themselves or feeling about themselves. Um, and each individual moment where we might feel differently about ourselves or behave differently, so these are kind of our states, state self-esteem, um, these are iteratively connected across time and they slowly feed into that attractor state of our trait self-esteem. Uh, so I think that this gives us a lot more kind of agency as people because we can, we can steer our own development and steer how our trait self-esteem emerges um, by seeking out environments or interactions or, or 
anything that makes us feel good and we slowly develop this new pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when it comes to methodology, you've alluded to this earlier, but uh, what do you think uh, might be some of the problems with resorting to representative samples and trying to study average abilities instead of perhaps having holistic descriptions of individuals? Yeah, so I think um, there's consequences for both the real world uptake of this kind of uh, knowledge and information and in our pursuit of knowledge within science. So um, I'll first go to the, the real world uptake. So I think mm -hmm. it's incredibly important um, that we're, we're not always taking this kind of large scale um, approach looking at representative samples and, and averages across them because I think what it does um, and we talk about this in our book quite a lot, is that it, it creates this, um, this idea of natural kinds. And so natural kinds being real categories of people that exist, that are yeah. meaningful, and that are stable. Um, so the more we talk about boys versus girls, or two-year-olds versus five-year-olds, or whatever kind of representative samples uh, psychologists tend to look at, um, social economic status, right? Um, we're reinforcing this idea, basically of stereotyping, um, that these groups are truly different from each other, that they share the same uh, underlying trait or underlying entity, whatever it is that we're talking about, whether it's personality or self-esteem, mm -hmm. um, that these are ontologically separate and, and stable, uh, reducible to whatever makes those categories of people different from each other. Um, whether it's you know, skin color or, or age. Um, so I think it can be quite harmful in terms of reinforcing the tendency of generalizing and, and stereotyping. Mm -hmm. So that's the real world uptake. Um, and in terms of science, I don't think that the, there's inherently anything wrong with, with averaging and, and looking at categories of people. But if we leave it at that, and if that remains the, the dominant uh, approach, um, well, then we're just missing out on all of the richness uh, that I think psychology can offer. So I think that any kind of large-scale um, kind of nomothetic approach to, to research should always be complemented with something that delves into the richness, so our, the, the dynamics, the idiosyncrasies of, of individuals. Um, so in this sense, I think that a, a kind of pluralistic scientific approach would be the ideal. Um, the harm only comes in if we kind of forget to to look at the the yeah the dynamics the qualitative components of of psychology and really contextualize that large scale aggregated information. Mm -hmm. uh, so another issue that you tackle in the book is psychology's practice of explaining or trying to explain psychological phenomena based on what you call the model of manipulation or intervention causality. Mm -hmm. So what is that yeah. model really about and what would you say are the issues there? Yeah, so uh, the, the model of intervention uh, causality um, is basically the idea, uh, so I mentioned before that if we have the substance ontology uh, assumption that an, an entity just exists on its own, whether or not anybody does anything to it, Mm -hmm. um, uh, that if we then 
take another uh, variable or, or factor and kind of bring them together, we intervene on that, that entity, um, that any change can be attributed to that, that additional variable. Uh, this could be an experiment in an experimental setting. It could be uh, the influence of a, a parent if we're looking at uh, development. Um, but yeah, it kind of reduces the, the causal explanation to that intervening factor, which is often seen as a, a variable. Uh, and that without that intervening variable, the thing that we're looking at will just remain stable. This is the, the, the basis of that uh, causality model. Mm -hmm. And I guess that one type of study that very much falls under the umbrella of intervention causality is randomized control trials, right? Which are pretty much considered the gold standard of research when it comes to yeah. trying to understand what causes something or linking causes and effects in particular ways. But since it is... Uh, it seems to me tied to a substance ontology as well. Uh, do you think there are particular issues with randomized control trials or perhaps um, the ways we interpret data that come from them? Yeah, so I think there's obviously a, a lot of value in randomized control trials, mm -hmm. things like uh, testing the effectiveness of, of medicine, mm -hmm. uh, things like that. So again, I, I don't think that we need to get rid of them. Um, sure. But I think for psychology, um, they can be harmful for furthering our scientific understanding of, of a phenomenon because we're reducing the complexity of a system rather than embracing it. So we're mm. kind of artificially separating cause from effect um, and not considering the way that a system actually behaves in its natural setting. Um, so I think if you over-control something, somebody's behavior, um, and you manipulate only one factor, we get this, this idea that we are kind of in a pure way understanding causality, but I think it's actually oversimplifying that system to such an extent that we're not actually studying the system of interest anymore. We're studying something that we've artificially created, which only holds true in the context of that specific uh, experiment, for example. Um, so in that sense, it lacks what's called ecological validity. It might not be valid in the real world. So whether something has value, um, if it's only true in a specific over-controlled setting, I personally have notes. Um, I think it would be interesting to kind of complement these two types of studies. So study something in the wild, in, in real life. Mm -hmm. And when we get a sense of, hey, I think these two processes are really, uh, really linked, mm -hmm. um, then we can kind of try to pull them apart and study them in this over-controlled way and see if it still holds. So this mm -hmm. is kind of flipping that scientific practice um, upside down. Mm -hmm. So it's mostly that randomized control trials just by themselves do not give us enough information. Is that it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. uh, and so another thing now, uh, what is the measurement problem in psychology? Um, well, uh, yeah, so according 
from my perspective, measurement problem is that there's an over-reliance on, on quantitative, global, and static measures mm -hmm. of uh, psychological phenomenon. Um, and this stems from this kind of, that there's a judgment value involved uh, with this physics envy that I think a lot of uh, psychologists have. So again, very much related to the, the randomized control trial uh, norm. Mm -hmm. um, that we're only doing objective and scientific and, and good research if we're measuring something quantitatively, um, because this is what real data is. That's the common kind of assumption. Um, and I think that this is, this is a problem because um, it's prohibiting us or preventing us from, from studying the true ontology of our psychological phenomenon. So I think, um, there's been, for example, a lot of research on uh, Milgram's experiments. So this was that classic 1960s experiment of um, understanding obedience and uh, disobedience. Mm -hmm. And I think and the, the general results that came out of this uh, classically is that people respond to authority to such an extent that they're willing to uh, harm somebody else. Mm -hmm. um, but that if you actually... Um, yeah, so this was based on just the numbers, right? So, okay. so these people uh, ended up pressing this button to such an extent that they hurt people, um, looking at averages and, and numbers. But if we actually mm -hmm. look at the context and describe the process, so the trajectory of the experimenter and the participant yeah. interacting with each other in terms mm -hmm. of their behavior, the negotiations that actually went on, a lot of research that has looked at these uh, transcripts has found out that it's not as simple as the numbers tell us. Uh, it's not simply as if, if somebody has more authority um, that participants are willing to obey. Right. Um, but there's a, there's, a, there's a richness of negotiations and, and sense-making going on between these two individuals. And, and the trajectories vary vastly depending on how they talk to each other. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it just gives us a wrong... Uh, picture of, of how to uh, understand and explain um, human behavior and, and psychology and if so, we only look at averages. Right. And so in this case, what would you say would be a process approach alternative to measurement? Yeah, I think, um, I think that the qualitative uh, researchers are really onto something. Uh, so I myself started doing um, research, not qualitatively, but, but quantitatively, but using time series. Um, mm -hmm. So really taking the time component into account. So that's one way of uh, changing measurements. So making sure that time uh, and describing trajectories of, of change across time, uh, that can be a way of uh, advancing measurement. So anything that moves us away from just aggregated and static scores, I think, is already an improvement. Um, using time series is a, is a really, really good way. Um, but more and more I'm becoming convinced that we need that qualitative understanding to really just describe what is somebody doing and what is somebody else doing and how are they talking to each other. Um, because I think in a way any quantitative measurement, even if it's a, a time serial measurement, is always going to be oversimplifying the rich dynamics that are going on between one person and another person. Um, in a context. So I think a process uh, approach to measurement is 
either time serial or uh, a qualitative measurement, which isn't really then measuring anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in the process approach, how do you deal with variability? Because, for example, when earlier we talked about self-esteem, you mentioned that uh, even people in like mainstream psychology, they see variability, they, but sometimes because they think in terms of a, an underlying trait, they many times just dismiss it, or for example, they just calculate the average and the variability doesn't matter much, or for example, if we're comparing uh, different people or different groups of people, again, just calculating the average and sometimes the rest is just uh, a variability that doesn't really matter, or sometimes they call it noise in particular mm -hmm. context. So mm -hmm. uh, in this case, if you're approaching things through a process ontology or process approach, how do you deal with variability? Yeah, so I think the, how one deals with it ideally is um, mapping or, or following that variability. So whether that's quantitatively with our time series, right, and, and really mm -hmm. looking at what is the, the temporal structure of variability. Um, so a study that I did a, a while back was showing that the temporal structure of state self-esteem isn't what's called uh, white noise which is just random fluctuations that yeah. don't have any kind of temporal links. Um, but it's actually pink noise, which, which has to do with fractal dynamics. So showing that the, the temporal dynamics themselves are meaningful. They emerge into these patterns and there's, uh, there's kind of memory in that, um, that variability. So we can actually look at the structure of variability itself. That's one way forward. Um, to see what is what what is that structure and what does that mean about the the system that we're studying, like for self-esteem in my case, um, we can also look at whether the uh, at, at the amount of variability across time. Uh, that's also incredibly meaningful because uh, when a system uh, is more open to to change, it's more variable. Uh, so if we can find those moments in somebody's uh, personal trajectory where their behavior is more, more, more variable. That's, for example, the ideal moment to, to intervene uh, if we want to change that trajectory. Uh, so literally sending someone to therapy, for example, or uh, changing schools. Um, those are kind of ideal moments to, mm -hmm. to uh, enable developmental change. So there's, there's lots of ways that we can actually study variability itself in terms of its trajectories or the, the structure of variability to get so much more out of um, what we can understand. Another very interesting topic that you cover in the book that I would like to ask you about now is the so-called replication crisis in psychology. That's something that people have been worried about for around a decade now. So do you think that a process approach would reframe the way we think about the replication crisis? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I think it's important to distinguish between replication crisis and reproducibility crisis. Okay. So they're often kind of used used together. Yes. Because of the 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 assumption that if you replicate a study perfectly, you will also reproduce the outcome mm -hmm. perfectly, right? Right. Um, 
under this kind of mechanistic assumption that put in uh, this factor and that factor, you'll get the same output because mm -hmm. we all, uh, because people share this underlying entity that behaves mm -hmm. similarly depending on the, the way that it's being intervened upon. So that's why traditionally I think these two words are, are used interchangeably. Um, and I think that the way, uh, the way to deal with this crisis is to acknowledge that these are two separate problems. So one is the uh, reproducibility. Um, we should be able to, or sorry, replication. We should be replicating studies. I think this is great. Um, because then we can see, you know, which behavioral patterns tend to be quite similar and, and why, what are the mm -hmm. contexts that cause similar behavior? And then we can start to tweak these factors and uh, look at differences between contexts, for example. Um, but the reproducibility crisis, I think, will always remain a crisis if we assume that we can control behavior this way, that that people have entities that are going to behave in a predictable way if you put them in a predictable uh, situation. Um, whereas from a process ontology approach, we, we would never assume that any study could be reproduced in terms of its outcome, its effect, because each system is individual and separate because of it's taken in a different moment of time with a different individual, with a slightly different experimenter uh, who uses slightly different language. Many factors involved that it's absurd to assume that people are going to respond the same way um, because you can never uh, actually clone a, a system uh, in separate moments of time and separate situations. So I think that yeah, the key, for, the key in moving forward is to really pull these two things apart and acknowledge that it's okay that we are not re reproducing effects, um, but instead we need to kind of zoom into why? Why are these things, why are people behaving differently? And then we truly understand what's going on. But this is really hard for most people, particularly, I guess, in the Western tradition to understand, right? Because, I mean, just looking at the sort of studies that uh, usually do not replicate, but perhaps because they are contingent upon a particular uh, cultural or historical context and that's why sometimes things change. I mean, but it's really hard for people to uh, understand how we should deal with that kind of information and what, yeah. what is valuable about it, right? Yeah, and I think, I think that culturally, um, Science is kind of seen as this 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 business that kind of churns out effects um, that are easy to uh, to consume and to use and to apply in different situations, um, and it's hard to let go of that. As you said, people want to know what is the effect of this variable, how does it affect another variable? Um, it's much more digestible, um, and I get that, but I but I I think that. Um, if we as uh, scientists and consumers of science um, can acknowledge that that's just not the way the world works, <laughs> the world simply is more complex than that, um, we can adjust our expectations. Um, because I think that uh, a kind of slower, more collective science that describes situations 
mm -hmm. uh, contextualizes behavior, we can still get to that same level of understanding of uh, um, what is the effect of rejection on somebody's self-esteem, for example, um, without just isolating it to two variables that we can manipulate. Um, but it requires us to kind of zoom out and zoom back and uh, take a bit longer to, to look at how all of the studies together inform our understanding of that uh, causal relationship. Mm -hmm. And so let me just ask you one last question then. So still related to the replication crisis, how do you think we should deal with psychological phenomena that have not been replicated? I mean, are they uh, true in any way? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that there are um, a lot of uh, effects in, in these kind of experimental studies that probably have more, more truth than, than others in the sense that we as, uh, uh, as individuals who kind of share cultural backgrounds, we learn about how we how we can um, respond to certain situations, for example, and that some of these effects might uh, do better at um, revealing these 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 tendencies that we that we might share. Um, and if those are not replicating, then I think it deserves just more digging into, uh, delving into the the qualitative side of those uh, those processes. So describing why and why not, um, or when and when not are people uh, responding in the way that we expect. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a lot of other studies uh, that are just a little bit less logical. Uh, a lot of studies in, in social psychology, I think, is just kind of, for example, uh, there's something about um, eating meat and um, behaving in a, in a kind way to others, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, if this is not replicated, then I think there's, well, there's not much theoretical thought behind it, right? Or yeah. observations behind it that would kind of justify the need to take that effect so seriously that we delve deeper. So I think some effects, um, some studies can probably just be dropped if they're not replicated and some that are more theoretically based mm -hmm. um, uh, or theoretically grounded, we can take them more seriously by digging into into it more mm -hmm. but but anyway i think that one message that we can take can take from all of this is that just because we see that a particular effect or psychological phenomena does not replicate it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no truth at all to it and that we should dismiss it immediately no, right? no. yeah correct Okay, great. So uh, the book is again toward a process approach in psychology, stepping into Heraclitus's river. There it is, a very nice cover, <laughs> by the way. I really, I really love the cover. Uh, so uh, I'm leaving a link to it in the description box of this interview. And Dr. The Writer, just before we go, apart from the book, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Um... Yeah, you can find a lot of my work uh, just on uh, Google Scholar or on my webpage um, at the University of Groningen. Um, I've got links there to to my my work. Yeah. Okay, 
Great. So I'm adding that to the description of this interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Uh, talk to you. My pleasure as well. Thank you. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon and PayPal. The links are in the description down below. And also please share, like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Perga Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunde, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Erika Lenny, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Ruinasi, Zup, Mark Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andre, Francis Forte, Agnunes, Fergal Cousin, Hal Herzog, Nun Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nyars, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hummel, Sadus France, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Desaraújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Anik Puntara, Dana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madsen, Gary Hellman, Simon Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paul Tolentino, John Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Giorgio Stiofanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Morey, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheist, Larry Dilley Jr., Old Harrington, Starry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandin, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Paul Crowley's, Kate Von Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, B.R., Masood Ali Mohammadi, Perpendicular, Jonas Hurtner, Ursula Goodenough, Gregory Hastings and David Pinsoff. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Stefaniak, Tom Van Egdam, Bernard Eugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Miller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Alni Cortes, Nick Golden and Rosie. And to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codrian and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all. <laughs>